See, because if you cross that line of justification and then you fail to grow, you didn't understand what happened in the first place. Do you believe that God is coming to rescue you? That He's sanctifying you? College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Well, welcome back. Uh, I don't know about you, I know some of you have uh, harder programs during the school year than others, but uh, I was bored by the end of the break, for sure. I was ready to be back in the swing of things, back at Reach, uh, and back in here. Uh, so, at the end of last year, we finished a series on Judges. Um, and if you were here for that, it was getting pretty dark towards the end. Uh, I mean, the whole book of Judges is pretty dark, but it definitely takes a downturn at the very end. So it was a great Christmas message. Um, so it's time to get back in the New Testament. We're going to go and we're going to be in Romans and we're going to uh, talk about the gospel. It's going to be a, a gospel-centered. Um, and my goal is always that. What we're talking about in here is the gospel, but uh, Judges, it was like a game of hide-and-seek with the gospel. And uh, Romans, it, it really is just the centerpiece and the only thing that Paul's really trying to talk about. So it'll be a much more light subject um, and a much thicker book. Um, so two years ago, I asked you guys uh, two questions. Or I'm sorry, one year ago when we started this class, I asked you guys two questions. Um, one of those questions was... What do we actually believe? Like, what do you actually believe in? And I told you that what we were going to do in here was we were going to answer that question and that it didn't matter. This was the college class, but it wasn't about whether or not you were actually in college classes. I don't care if you're attending college classes. If you're trying to answer the question, what do I believe? What is this Christianity thing about? That's the question that we're going to answer in this class. Um, There are a lot of things a lot of options in the world for what you might believe. You could believe in reincarnation. You could believe that you're going to come back as a grasshopper or a horse. You could believe in uh, nihilism. You could believe that this is it. Once you die, end of the game, you just fade into blackness and non-existence and it doesn't matter. You could believe that the earth is flat, that birds aren't real, You could believe that OSU is a great football team. You could believe that you've been abducted by UFOs. (laughs) There's a lot of things that you can believe in this world. Uh, And so the question really is like, what do we believe in Christianity? What is the purpose of this belief system? Um, The second question was, how do I live out what I believe? Once I know what I believe, how do I actually act on that? Well, I want to add a third question. This year, we're going to ask ourselves those same two questions. What do I believe? How do I live that out? How do I act in that belief? And the last question we're going to add is why. Why do I live this out? And I'm not talking about the logic of Christianity. We're not going to talk about um, all the reasons there are for 
believing some of the things we believe. We can have that discussion, and I'm more than happy to have that discussion with you one-on-one. But in here, the why is going to be, why does it matter that I live it out? Why, like, why bother? And on that note, who cares? Why, if I don't live this out, who actually is affected or cares that I decide to believe one thing but not really express it in my life? Right, so that's the question that we're going to add to what we're doing. And so as we start this series on Romans, what I want you to understand is that Romans is maybe the best explanation of the gospel in the Bible. It is uh, every single detail that Paul could systematically stitch together to explain, this is what the gospel is all about. This is what the point of the entire Bible is. Now the question you might ask in that moment is, why did Paul write such a thorough explanation of the gospel? What was going on that made him write this down? Uh, the first thing you need to know is that um, they think that at Pentecost in Acts, when uh, the gospel first started spreading and thousands of people got saved, that there was probably Roman uh, citizen Jews that lived in the capital city of Rome at Pentecost. And those Jews got saved, and it's highly probable that they went back to Rome and they started a church in Rome. Because we don't know who the founder of the church in Rome is. It wasn't Peter and it wasn't Paul. So it's probably Christians bringing the gospel message back from the day of Pentecost. So what happened was they start a church in Rome. They begin to grow in their Christian faith. And then in AD 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from the capital city because in the uh, non-biblical uh historical documents we have, they were the Jews were causing riots over someone named Crestus. And what they think is that as the gospel began to spread in Rome, what happened everywhere Paul went when he took the gospel happened in Rome, which is that the uh, Jewish uh, believers there that didn't want to accept Jesus got mad and started rioting. So in AD 49, Emperor Claudius, who's just tired of these Jews and their, their riots, he just kicks everybody out of the city for five years. Well, five years later, as the Jews came back into the city, as they were finally allowed back in, they came back to a Christian church that had survived while they were gone that was uniquely Gentile. So all of their values and all of the values of Judaism would have, would have disappeared from the church. And as they came back, because they saw Christ as the extension of Judaism, as the continuation of, of their original religion, they would have said, well, you're doing it all wrong. You can't, you can't worship Jesus this way. You've got to do it the way we've always done it in Judaism. So Paul is, for, for the first part, he is writing a letter that he's saying, what is the source of our righteousness? What makes us righteous? Is it being a Jew? Is it Judaism? Is it following the law? Is it being circumcised? Or is it the name of Jesus Christ? Is it actually this person? So he's writing them to unify them around the gospel. He wants them to have unity in their Christian body around this message of the gospel. The, um, this, the reason that he is so earnest in creating this unity is because Paul has a mission. Right now, he is at the end of his third missionary journey, and he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He's in Corinth as he writes this letter, but he has plans. 
he's going to go to Spain. He's going to take the gospel to Spain because no one's taking it there. And it's the furthest uh, western region of the Roman Empire. And he wants to take the gospel there. And he sees the church in Rome as a great staging ground, as a platform for that mission to support him and to give him what he needs to go all the way to Spain. But he needs them to be united around the gospel so they can effectively help him take the gospel to Spain. So he he's writing this letter, and then on top of all of that, this is late in Paul's life, and multiple times people have tried to kill him. Paul is not 100% sure that he's going to survive going to Jerusalem. And we know he goes to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, he ends up in his first Roman imprisonment where he goes all the way to Caesar. Um, he is released from that imprisonment and later he goes back in prison in Rome and that is where we believe that he was executed probably by Nero. But uh, he at this point doesn't know that he's headed back to be arrested, but he knows he's got a lot of enemies, enemies of the gospel. So Paul is writing this long explanation of the gospel and he's doing his best to use language that can't be twisted. It can't be manipulated. His enemies can't adjust what he's saying. He's going to write the fullest explanation of the gospel he can. And that way, no matter what happens to him, it's on the record. This is what the gospel is. I've explained it to you in the fullness that I can possibly use words to communicate. So that is the goal of what's going on in Romans. So my question is really, what, what is the big deal with the gospel? How does that bring unity to believers? How do we, no matter what our background is, no matter where we come from or uh, what ethnicity we are culturally, we are all united around the gospel. Why is that? The gospel is the centerpiece of Christianity. There's no Christianity 2.0. It's not the gospel gets you in. And then you go on to like the bigger, more advanced lessons. It's just the gospel. The entire Bible is about the gospel from end to end. The writer of Hebrews, which is probably not Paul, uh, is making the argument that the entire Old Testament is just pointing to Jesus, to the gospel. And Paul is going to spend all of Romans saying, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, this is all that matters. It's the gospel. So, uh, one thing that you have to understand is that no other system of belief has uh, this message of God. He came as a human. Like, he left his godhood, he left his power, he came as a human because he loved us so much that he wanted to die in our place. That is uniquely Christian. That doesn't exist anywhere else. That message is foreign. It would have been especially foreign at the time that it happened because the Romans thought the gods were very disinterested in mortals. The gods were divinely powerful. They lived on Mount Olympus, and they were really too busy to mess with us except when they were just having some fun. They might mess with us when they were, they, they were bored. But all of a sudden, there's this message of Christianity which is saying that God gave up his power to be God to die for us because he loved us that much. That's a unique message that only comes from the gospel. So I'm calling this series Bound to Christ. Here's the reality. You are bound to something in this world. You are bound to your sin. 
you're bound to your pride, you're bound to uh, your career motivations, or you're bound to this idea, uh, this idol that we have of, of a relationship, the perfect relationship, but you are tied to something in your life. And the goal is that you understand that if you have become a Christian, you're no longer bound and tied to the things of this world that cannot possibly bring fulfillment. You're now bound to Jesus Christ. The only thing that brings fulfillment, the only thing that saves us, the only thing that completes us and gives us joy is Jesus Christ. And that's what you're bound to. And the first part of chapter 1, Paul is going to give us clarity in the gospel. He's going to shine a light on this gospel message, on this theme that he's about to unpack piece by piece by piece for eight chapters. So the first thing is we're going to, is we're going to look at the focus of the gospel. I want you to see what is the central piece of the gospel. This is something that I think that we don't always understand. Uh, I think the gospel is oftentimes misconstrued as us being the center of it. The point of the gospel is that I get saved, right? That's actually not the centerpiece of the gospel. That is the byproduct of the gospel. That's what happens when you receive the gospel. But look, at, look with me at Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles in behalf of his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, the gospel focus is in verse 3. The gospel focus is Jesus Christ. He is the point. See, this is another thing that's unique about Christianity. Our, our belief system is not that a great teacher came to teach us a way that we should adopt or a, a certain moral code or system of beliefs that we should hold to. It's not the teacher pointing to the way. The person is the way. Jesus Christ himself, the person, is the gospel. He is the focus piece. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I've come to show you a way, a truth, and a life. It was him. So being bound to Christ is receiving the gospel. And when we understand this, all of a sudden, the other verses around verse 3 can be interpreted in the light of the focus of the gospel. Verse 1 and 2 are understood in the light of verse 3. See, Paul says he's a bondservant. That means he's a slave. He's a slave to Christ. He's, what is he not a slave to? He's not a slave to a way of life. He's not a, sl a slave to a moral code or a, a certain way of acting. He's a slave to a person, a specific person named Jesus Christ. How many of you even conceptualize yourself as if you're a Christian, as serving Jesus. Not serving a certain set of rules, 
or are trying to nail down a certain doctrine or theology, but actually serving Him, the person. Paul says he's a slave of Jesus Christ. He says he's been set apart. This means reserved for the gospel of God. Uh, the word gospel, it's where we get the root word for evangelism. And this word, actually, he's co-opting this word. This is a Roman word, or it's a Greek word, but it was used by the Romans for two things. It, one, told about a military victory, a conquer. It was good news, we won the battle. And it had a second meaning. It was also used as a term for emperor worship. Because the idea was, it's the good news about the emperor, and good news about the emperor is good for all the emperor's people. It was good for all Romans that good things happened to the emperor. Think about what Paul's doing when he takes that word. He's saying this is good news of God, which means it's good for all people everywhere. And it's also a news of God's victory. It's good news that God is victorious, and that's good for everybody. So Paul takes this word, and he says, I've been set apart. Because I'm a slave to Jesus Christ, I have been reserved for this good news for all people to be spread. This good news, he says, is what the Old Testament is talking about the whole time. He says the prophets were prophesying, they were writing Holy Scriptures that was about this good news. Right? See, what, what were the Jews' biggest problem with Jesus? They thought that the whole Old Testament was about a series of regulations that, that were unique to Jews, that made Jews special, and made Jews the only people that God uh, cared about and was going to save. And he's saying it's not about that. The whole Old Testament was pointing to this person, this good news of this person of Jesus Christ. Then he gets to, to verse uh, verses 4 through 7. He says, uh, he says that in the end of verse 3, who was born of a descendant of David. He's talking about the humiliation of God as a human. He's saying God, Jesus Christ, was a descendant of a human person. He was a descendant of David. Now, this has a double proof here, right? One is that he was a descendant of David, and they believed the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But he's also saying he was a human being. He's talking about his humiliation. And then the very next verse, he says, he says, who was declared the Son of God, or divine. He's talking about that he was God. And he says, he was declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That means because he was perfect. We saw that he was perfect, and only God is good. Only God could be perfect. So he was human, and yet he was divine. And then he says that the resurrection <coughs> proves that he was perfect. Why? Because death claims us for our sins. And the only reason that Jesus could come back is because they weren't his sins. See, Jesus coming back is what proved to us that he lived a perfect life because if he had his own sins to pay for, he would have died and stayed dead. And then we would have gone, well, he was a good guy, better than most. The fact that he rose from the dead is proof that he wasn't just human, he was God. He was divine. It proves that he lived a perfect life. It proves that he had divine power. And it puts our hope in the resurrection. See, 1 Peter 3.18 says, uh, For Christ also suffered once 
for all time, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, Jesus died in his flesh for us to be brought to God, but he was made alive because he was divine and perfect, because he had never sinned. Paul says in in another part of the Bible, he says that we are to be pitied more than all men if the resurrection isn't true. Why is that? Because we're believing on somebody who is paying for their own sins and can't help us. The only way that we have hope in Christ, the only way that His resurrection shows that we will be resurrected is if it happened, if He did it. I just finished uh, listening to Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. First of all, I highly recommend you either read or listen to that book. It is incredible. Um, But one of the things Tim Keller talks about in that book is he says that if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to believe everything he said. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing he said matters. See, if Jesus didn't come back to life, why even come back to this building? Why read this book? Why do anything he ever said if he didn't come back to life? He was just another better than average person. But if Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. That means that everything he said was said by God and has an effect on all of humanity. It should change everything about the way we live. You have to settle in your own mind, do I believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and if I do, that changes everything. That means I have to believe everything else. In verse 5, he says, through whom? Jesus, through whom we get grace. Not through a certain set of beliefs, not through our own merit, our own works, not through the law, through a person. Through Jesus Christ, the person, we receive grace. And when we receive that grace, that grace is to bring about obedience among the Gentiles. Let's pause right here. What does that mean? Faith in Jesus, belief on the name of Jesus, in the person, is what gets us grace resulting in obedience. It results in obedience. Why? It's because when we obey with our words, we proclaim the gospel. When we obey with our lifestyle and our actions, we proclaim the gospel. And that shows other people the truth of the name of Jesus Christ. See, if we, if I asked you at the beginning of this, why does it matter? Because the gospel wasn't just for you. And so if you get saved and then you don't tell anybody else with your actions or with your words, You are not allowing other people to see the truth of Jesus Christ. You are not allowing other people to be saved and rescued from the same thing that you were saved and rescued from. It's to glorify His name, and glorifying His name, magnifying His name, is what allows more people to get to Him, more people to be saved. We don't obey because we're obligated to obey. We obey because we have gratitude that we've been saved. Your obedience is out of a realization that God loved you so much, He saved you. Not because you have merit, but just because He loves you. You're not saved by obeying, but not obeying, causing a question whether or not you were saved. 
You have to understand that if you're not willing to obey anything, to follow God's precepts, to be in His church or in His Word, I would ask you if you have any real concept that you were even saved. And if you don't have any concept or realization that you were even saved enough to obey, were you? Or are you just assuming it? Verse 6, he says, the focus is Jesus who called you as saints. What does that mean? Saints means that you were set apart. You've been saved to act differently, to be set apart, and to rejoice because you were loved by God. Verse 7, the language confused me. He's talking about rejoicing, acting a certain way as a saint because you realized God loves you. God loves you so much that He saved you. The object of our faith is a risen person, not a moral code. That's the focus of the gospel. And the focus of the gospel is not that you got saved. It's who saved you. That's the focus of the gospel. Verse 7 ends with the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ. A full title. Lord Jesus is emphasizing His divinity, His authority, that He was God. Jesus is representing the person, the humanity, the focus of the gospel. And Christ is representing that He's the Savior. He was the Messiah, the Redeemer. It's His redemptive role in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's not the Christ. The Father's not the Christ. Jesus, the man, was the Christ. He was the Messiah. So how do we live this out? What's the goal of understanding this belief? As we get into the gospel goal, the goal is to live the gospel out, not to achieve personal holiness. We live the gospel out so that others can see the gospel. If you got woken up during a fire, you and everyone else in this room is asleep, and somebody wakes you up and is like, hey, the building's on fire, we got to get out of here, help me tell other people. And you were just like, huh. I'm happy, I'm awake, I'm out. You just leave everybody else to die in the fire. Right? The point is, you have to wake up everybody around you. You come into contact with non-Christians at your job, at school, in church. If you're not living this out, you're not putting on display the reality that you've been saved in a way that will allow someone else to see that they need to be saved. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being uh, proclaimed throughout the world. For God, whom I serve in, in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, requesting if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I will succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that I, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the uncultured, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 8 
tells us the goal. Verse 8 says to proclaim. Verse 9 says to preach. Verse 15 says to preach. Now, keep in mind, I'm not talking about on-stage preaching. We consider what I'm doing right now preaching, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about preaching the gospel by telling people about it. Telling people about it, again, with your words and with your actions. We are all called to preach the gospel. We're all called to proclaim it in everything we do. The goal is to proclaim or preach the gospel. How? And Paul's about to give us a litany of examples of how we proclaim and preach the gospel just in this section. In verse 8, he says, First, I thank God. You know, non-believers are thankful for superficial things in their life, but who are they thankful to? I mean, a non-believer who hasn't met God can't thank God for something happening to them. Right? Here's the reality. What we're thankful for is not just the superficial, temporary things around us. We're thankful that we've been saved by a God who loves us. We start everything we face with thanksgiving because even if the situation in front of me is horrible, I'm thanking God that I'm still saved. That no matter how bad this gets, I'm going to make it to the next thing. I'm going to get to heaven. So he starts with thanksgiving. He says, I thank God for saving you in spite of current circumstances. I thank God that your faith is proclaiming the gospel. It's spreading the gospel so that more can be saved. In 9 and 10, he says, I pray. Do you understand that nothing you do has any power apart from prayer? No preaching, no telling people the gospel, no trying to live a certain kind of moral life. None of it matters if you're not praying. Praying is the single most important thing we do to participate in God's plan for our lives, in the unfolding of everything around us. If you're not praying, you're not participating in what God is doing. He says, I'm praying for you. In verses 13, uh, 11 through 13, he says, I want to fellowship with you. I want to disciple you. And I want to do ministry with you. Fellowship is encouragement. You understand that you cannot live the Christian life alone? You, you literally can't do it. I always reference that. One of my favorite moments in the Bible is Moses is told, as long as you keep your arms up over this battlefield, that, that the Israelites will have victory. And what happens? You ever try to hold your hands over your head for a long time? Eventually they start coming down, right? It's tiring. And what happens is that he needs two men to come alongside of him and push his arms back up over his head. You cannot do the Christian life alone. It can't be done. That's why we need to be at church. That's why you need to be in Sunday school, in a life group, in a discipleship relationship. You need people pushing your arms up. That's the fellowship with other believers, the encouragement uh, that you can't get by yourself. Discipleship is instruction. It's growth. It's fruit producing. Discipleship is when a believer that's just even a half step ahead of you in their spiritual maturity pours into you so that you can glean knowledge and understanding about the Word of God. Do you know where else you get discipled? By the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. Listen, what's the date? January 8th? Worst case scenario, you've missed eight quiet times this year. Read your Bible this year. Fall in love with this, with this Word. Listen, I have had some great experiences in my life. 
I've gotten to do a lot of cool stuff, and I'm telling you that nothing fills me up from bottom to top with joy and contentment and changes my life the way just reading this book does. Why? Because I have the Holy Spirit, and when I read this book, He talks to me, teaches me, He disciples me. Being a disciple is learning to be a follower. When you read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit Himself is teaching you to be a follower. Ministry. The, the Bible says that we will be known by our love for one another. See, when the world loves, it loves in a selfish way. When we minister to one another, it's how we love on one another. It's how we show our love to be different. And all three of these things, they fall under this theme that, that Paul has, this theme of unity around the gospel. He says, I want you to be united in all these ways, and I want to be united with you in all these ways. In Colossians, he says, or maybe it's 1 John, one of those places, we see that you can't love Christ and hate the things that Christ is united to. You can't be united to Christ and not united to the church. You can't be united to Christ and not united to believers. It doesn't work. That's not how this works. Because if you love Jesus, you love the things He loves. In verse 14, he says, I'm obligated to all people. He says, uh, t the phrasing is kind of funny here. He says, I'm under obligations both to Greeks and to the uncultured. See, to Greeks, everyone that wasn't Greek was uncultured. So he's saying, I'm under obligation to the Greeks and everyone else, all the non-Greeks, right? And it's actually kind of a, a funny thing to say because he's writing to a church that's half Greek and half Jew, and he calls the Jews the uncultured ones, right? So he's saying, I'm obligated to all people. How is he obligated to all people? Because God gave him the gospel that he didn't deserve, and because of that, he owes it to God to continue to spread that unmerited, unwarranted grace that he has received. Uh, I think it's Billy Graham that said, the gospel came to you on its way to someone else. If you have received the gospel and you are not busy letting other people find it, helping other people find it, then you have stifled something that was never intended to stop with you. And if you truly understand the gospel, you can't help but spread it to people. In verse 15, he says, we have to spread the gospel, we have to be on mission. 14 and 15 are about going out and being on mission. If you believe in reincarnation, you might think that you're just in this perpetual cycle of life where you try to be a little bit better than last time and eventually you'll just evaporate into the ether of some eternal energy bliss. If you believe in nihilism, you might wake up every day saying, this doesn't matter, who cares, I can do whatever I want because the moment I die, it's just all going to be black. If you believe the earth is flat, you might be confused and paranoid when you see pictures of earth. If you believe birds aren't real, watching Animal Planet would be a struggle. If you believe OSU is a good team, you might have really sad falls in football seasons. <laughs> 
But if you believe that Jesus saves, you must tell people with your life and with your words. If you believe Jesus saves, it has to affect you. It has to change. See, all of those beliefs affect you. I don't, I don't understand how atheists get out of bed in the morning. If none of this matters, and when I die, it just all turns to black, why do anything? I don't understand it. See, because your beliefs have a direct effect on how you live them out. So you need to ask yourself this question. If your belief in Jesus has not affected the way you live your life at all, do you believe in Jesus? You don't follow Him to be saved. You follow Him because you're saved. The question is why? What is the purpose? What is the gospel's purpose? Why do I need to live this out? Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. The point is that the gospel saves everyone. See, two things are revealed to us in those two verses. One is that the gospel is God's power to save people. The gospel has power. The gospel is the only way to satisfy justice. See, here's the thing. You owe God. You actually owe God an infinite debt that you cannot pay. The power of God to save you is in the gospel because the gospel is that Jesus paid the debt. There's no other way to God than through Jesus, the person who paid the debt for you. It is the power of God to save everyone. Some people have this struggle where they think that grace is cheap and that that they can just abuse it. But some people have the opposite problem, and they're over here with this world where grace is too expensive, that they can't afford it because they've done too much. Your sin is not more powerful than the gospel. The gospel is God's power that He can overwhelm the debt that you owe Him and save you. The second thing that's revealed is the righteousness of God. This kind of has a twofold meaning. The first part of this meaning, the righteousness of God, is that He is in the right. He is in the right. It does, it's not talking about God is righteous because He's like the most morally upstanding being there is. It's saying that God is in His right, and you are guilty. You're in the wrong. He's in His right to have never saved any of us. But the second meaning, and the bigger, the bigger piece of this, what Paul's trying to say by, the, by, by revealing God's righteousness, is that it's His plan to make us be in the right. God's righteousness is His plan to justify us, to reconcile us to Himself so that we can also be in the right. It's His plan. It's His redemptive plan that He had at the foundation of the earth to make us right, which saves us, to put us right by Him. 
because he's eternally in the right and we have to be made right. So who gets this? He says, everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Now, notice what that doesn't say. It's not about everyone who has the merit or everyone who does the right good works or everyone who follows the law to a T. It's not about what you do. It's about who he is and what he's done. You don't earn it. You don't get it. You receive it because you believe and serve the person of Jesus Christ. That phrase at the end there, it, it confused me. It says, from faith to faith. And there's a lot of theories about that verse, but I'll tell you what I think that verse means. It means from end to end, it's faith. It's not faith to get you in the door and then works to keep you good. It's not faith until you earn some merit. It's not this idea of purgatory where you have faith that's going to eventually let you into heaven, but you still got to work it off in this intermediate area for a while. It's faith from end to end. It's a belief in, in a who, not a what. It's a belief in who saved you, not what saved you. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you embarrassed to tell people that you're a Christian? Are you embarrassed to act like a Christian? You may not think intellectually that you're embarrassed to act like a Christian, but when you get around your non-Christian friends and you hide your belief system and you immediately act like they're all acting, why do you think you do that? It's because you fear their approval more than you fear God's approval. And in that moment, I want you to think about the selfishness in your heart that is not willing to be a little bit embarrassed or ridiculed so that your friends can wake up and survive the fire. When you hide the gospel truth, you are saying, I care more about my, my comfort in this moment than the crisis of a non-believer on their way to eternal judgment. Your priorities in that moment are very, very backwards. He says, the righteous will live by faith. This is a quote. It's from Habakkuk chapter 2. And it's interesting, if you look at what Habakkuk uh, chapter 2 is using that word faith as, he's not using it in the same context. He means uh, fidelity or loyalty. Habakkuk is using it uh, in, in a time of crisis, and he's saying that those in right standing with God will live with loyalty to God. Let's paint the picture so you understand what this is. Soldiers in warfare throughout human history have been surrounded at various times. What do you think makes the difference between surrendering or holding out, even dying? The question in a soldier's mind has to be this. Do I care about the cause? Do I care? Do I believe in my side? Do I believe that they're either going to come get me or that eventually they're going to win because of my participation right now? See, a soldier that's surrounded, he has to ask himself, do I value my side so much that I'll suffer and die 
before I'll surrender. But a soldier in that exact same situation who doesn't believe in his cause is going to say, why die for this? They're going to surrender immediately. See, the way Habakkuk is using that phrase and the way Paul is trying to co-opt right now is he's saying that those in right standing with God, those who have truly met Him, who have truly been saved by Him, they believe so much that He is their Redeemer, their Rescuer, and their Redemption that they will never give up. It doesn't matter if they're surrounded. It doesn't matter if death is imminent. It doesn't matter how much suffering we have to go through right here and right now. I believe that I will be rescued because I believe in who will rescue me. The gospel is about our justification. It's about setting us right with God. But the interesting thing about that phrase is that phrase is more about our sanctification, our continued living in Christ's likeness and growth in Him. See, because if you cross that line of justification and then you fail to grow, you didn't understand what happened in the first place. Do you believe that God is coming to rescue you? That He's sanctifying you? Romans 10, 9 and 10 is for me one of the greatest single sections condensing what what it takes to get saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. See, there's no Christianity 2.0. There's no graduating from the gospel. There's no next level. It's just the gospel. And the only thing that matters is that you understand that you serve. You confess to serve a who. Not a what, not a system, not a church attendance record. A who that is Jesus Christ and that you believe that that who rose from the dead proving that He was God. And not only was He God, but His resurrection proves that He has the power to resurrect you and to save you. That's the whole point of the Gospel. We're going, to be, we're going to do the gospel in Romans. We're going to be in Romans 1 through 8, and then we're going to do Romans 12. Because we're going to hone in on what the gospel is, on this explanation of it. And I want you to start this series with some gospel clarity. The gospel is about a who. And as we begin to go through this, the reason that we're making those index cards available is I want you, as we go through this series, to wrestle with what you maybe have missed about the gospel, what you maybe have not understood about the gospel. You might think, well, I already prayed this prayer in VBS when I was seven, so now we're just going to go over the gospel for 15 weeks over and over and over again? You need to listen to me because I'm going to only say it one more time. That's all there is. There's not like, I'm not like holding out, like once you guys get the gospel, we'll move on to the more advanced stuff in here. It's just the gospel. That's it. So we are going to spend 15 weeks in Romans in the best explanation of the gospel, just picking it apart and seeing what the truth is, the who 
that saves us. Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.